Hello and welcome to the IMC Worldwide Podcast. My name is Sanjay Chowdhury and today I'm joined by two special guests to talk about evaluation of international development programs, specifically in fragile and conflict-affected states. My first guest is John Bennett, a specialist with over 30 years of experience in evaluation, post-war needs assessment, food security, internal displacement, rural development, relief, evaluation, and NGO training. He has worked in Africa and Asia as field director, country representative, and team leader for posts for the UN, World Food Program, and Oxfam. My second guest, Helen Stevenson, is a colleague of mine here at IMC and a project manager on several evaluations that IMC is managing for international development program donors. So, John, I mean, one of the things that we'll be uh, discussing today is, is evaluations in fragile and conflict-affected states. I wanted to ask you, I mean, for anybody who might not be part of an international development uh, background, what is an evaluation? Evaluation is the opportunity to look at accountability for programs, projects, whatever you're uh, dealing with, uh, to enable them to have an independent view on the successes and failures of that program. Uh, if you go back in time to the uh, 1980s in particular, uh, we hardly did any evaluations in those days. People just went out and did projects and it was assumed that what people were doing was correct. It was assumed that it, that it was effective. It was assumed that everything went to the right people, you know, the aid if you like. And um, what then happened was, particularly in the 1990s onwards, was that people started to question that. They said, well, you know, was, was the aid delivered in the way that it was supposed to be? Did it go to the right people? Was it effective? What was the outcome of it? You know, and what was the longer term impact of it? And so the evaluation business came into its own. It started to develop, uh, you know, skills in order to actually answer those questions. So we're now at a stage where evaluation is actually quite a business in itself. Uh, it's, it's, it, there's been an accumulation of experience and uh, techniques have uh, been built up over the years and now we're at a point where there are organizations that almost exclusively do evaluations. I think that here at IMC, even a few years ago, uh, we were not experts in monitoring and evaluation at all. Um, and then we realized that every program we were working on was being asked these questions. Um, so we built up our expertise over time, um, hired some new staff, and, um, and now I think it's fair to say that every program that we do has an M&E component, um, but we also have standalone evaluations of other programs, um, and we've become you know, experts in this field, um, slowly, bit by bit, responding to the demands of the donors and the international community. I think going back to the other issue about accountability, however, is that the public, you know, the British public, if you like, have probably become a bit more demanding themselves because people know more about aid than they used to. And so because they know more, they're expecting that as taxpayers, if money is spent on, you know, and we're talking about significant amounts of money is spent on development uh, and, and relief, then they want to know it's spent correctly. And so they need to have that independent view, uh, you know, outside of the people who actually implement the projects. They want an independent accountability for the way in which their money has been spent. And so how does an evaluation team kind of fit with a, with a program team? We often use the term critical friend. Um, we're not there necessarily to criticize a program, but to to look at how they're 
performing um, to see how they could maybe improve um, and help them develop a system to monitor progress. Um, there are obviously lots of different kinds of evaluations. Um, we talk about monitoring and evaluation, but it's not the same thing. Um, there's ongoing monitoring of the project or sort of independent evaluations, which is what we've been talking about. Um, but maybe, John, you could talk about some of these different types of evaluations. I mean, to some extent, we've had to carve out our own space in this. I mean, you, you, you quite understandably, uh, people who have been doing programs in countries, for example, for many years, would say, well, well so who are you to come in here for, for two weeks or three weeks and tell us something about our program that we don't already know? So we have to carve out a space for ourselves, and that space would really be in, in creating a different way of looking at it. Um, perhaps a slightly higher level way of looking at it, you know, saying, well, okay, you know all about your program, you know how it operates, but perhaps what you haven't looked at is the overall impact of it, or what consequences your program has on other organizations in the same area. Uh, it's those sort of questions, you know. Um, so I think there is a, there is a, um, uh, you know, we, we have tried over many years to carve out, to carve out that niche um, which allows us to uh, to have some value to the people that we're we're actually working for. The other thing is that there has to be, uh, and there hasn't always this hasn't always been the case. There has to be some kind of evaluation culture in organisations. They have to accept the notion that they are going to be critically appraised, and they have to look at what they're doing from a critical perspective and absorb the lessons that come out of that. Uh, and some organizations simply don't have that uh, evaluation culture. You have to almost hammer them over the head with it. Others are very uh, res responsive to that. At an even higher level, I think that evaluating a program allows us to think about whether the model could be replicated elsewhere. Um, certain programs are designed for a certain country, a certain context, but might be very useful somewhere else. There's been, um, uh, just talking about the, the different types of evaluation, I mean, all, it's, it's all about accountability and it's all about, um, uh, you know, looking at effectiveness and efficiency and all these, these words that we use. Uh, but there are certainly different types of evaluation. I mean, for example, you could go into an emergency situation and you could evaluate that situation right from the outset of the emergency all the way through to the recovery phase. You could, you could go in, you could say, look, uh, you know, exactly what are you doing on day one? This would be called a real-time evaluation. Uh, the other kind of evaluation, which is much more common, by the way, is that you go at the end of a program uh, and you say, right, now you've done it, you're just about to close, let's see what the impact is over, say, a, a three-year period or something like that. That is a much more common uh, pr approach. There's the other form of evaluation, which is a sort of halfway house. You, you go halfway through a program. And the reason you do it at that stage is because if there are any particular changes that need to take place, then you suggest those changes at that stage, and then the program can change course accordingly, if they accept your, your recommendations. Uh, and uh, so there are different, you know, it depends on when you go into something really as to, as to how valuable um, your, your uh, evaluation is. One of the biggest problems we've got, um, and I, I must say this is across the board for almost every development organization in the world, is that we talk about impact, but we don't put resources into really measuring impact. Because impact of any program, you probably wouldn't detect 
until at least three or four years down the line, when, when a, from after a program's finished, in other words. And very, very few organizations would ever give resources to looking at long-term impact of what they do. I would say the type of evaluation also depends on the budget. We typically see something along the lines of 1% of the overall program um, being allocated to either M&E systems or an evaluation. Um, you can design an extensive quantitative evaluation if you have enough funds. You could do a randomized control trial, almost like what we think about medical research. Um, but if you have a very limited budget, you might only be able to do some qualitative research, so focus group discussions, getting a group of people together to ask them about a program, um, or perhaps even just a few interviews, which certainly limits your scope. Conversely, it can be the other way around. I, I did an evaluation of uh, UNICEF's program uh, on the, the, uh, um, the tsunami, Asian tsunami, and uh, they had no idea that they were going to raise so much money for the tsunami and they put that 1% down and the evaluation budget was absolutely enormous you know and, and so they ended up having to use it for different purposes you know maybe for putting out publications and learning documents and whatever uh, so it, 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 it can be it can work both ways it can be either too little or too much <laughs> and you, you're hoping that the the one percent or it, by the way one percent is not a, it's not across the board but it's just a rough idea um, you're hoping that that it's about right uh, but one thing that has happened over the recent years is that every program has got something that looks like an evaluation budget. Uh, certainly if it's over you know, a, a certain amount of money, let, let's call it arbitrarily slightly, but let's say it was £200,000 or something, anything over £200,000 that you're spending must be evaluated. This never used to be the case, but it is the case now. So just to, just to be clear, that 1%, that does that mean that the if the program is of a particular amount, that 1% of the, of, the, of the budget should go for evaluation? Is that what you're referring to? Yes. If, if, uh, if the value of the overall program uh, would be, uh, there would be a percentage of that value would be put to evaluation. That would be a usual process. But of course, as I say, you know, if it goes into millions, then obviously the the the, uh, the evaluation budget uh, would be would exceed probably what you really needed. Uh, but at least they would they would establish a minimum, let's say a minimum uh, uh, percentage. Just talking about different uh, contexts and different countries where evaluations might take place. Uh, John, you gave a, a talk actually just just right before this podcast. Um, uh, for, for colleagues here at IMC um, and you talked a lot about your previous evaluation experience in uh, what are called fragile and conflict affected states. Can you just talk us through that? There's been an increasing amount of um, looking at fragile states and concern over fragile states. Incidentally that's also been marked by uh, a percentage of money given by donors like the British government into uh, dealing with fragile states has increased over many years and uh, this is the same with many uh, northern European countries now um, we've we've closed down a lot of programs at the same time as we've opened up more resources for fragile states the reason for this is it partly goes back to that whole concern around uh, terrorism 
um, it, we have to accept that, that ever since 2001 there's been that concern that fragile states are breeding grounds for, for, uh, for terrorists who are not only going to have an impact on that country but perhaps also um, going to have an international type of um, uh, impact. Um, there's a second, second reason for that and that is that many of these states uh, are regionally uh, creating instability. Uh, so it's a stability issue around a regional, um, you know, corpus of countries, if you like. Um, so, uh, so yes, there has been increasing resources put into fragile states, and what that means is that we're dealing with environments that are inherently unstable, uh, and we're also trying to evaluate something that is always changing. It's it's a very volatile uh, context in which we're working, uh, which creates its own challenges. Um, and we have to accept that you know you do an evaluation in country X today and in six months time it'll be invalid because that country has moved on there's been a whole lot of it and, and you know I'll give you a prime example of that I, I, um, I this is by the way not a franchise state but um, Nepal um, I was with uh, doing a um, evaluation of the British government's resilience program to earthquakes in Nepal and um, uh, we, we had a t an IMC team out there that I was leading and we, w we did the usual evaluation of how well has, have people prepared or are people being prepared for the eventuality of a, an earthquake here in Nepal. And we finished the evaluation and we all left and four days later there was a massive earthquake in Nepal. Now, we didn't know that, they didn't know that. Uh, it was extremely timely in that sense, the evaluation was, and yet uh, as soon as we came out with our report, it was already redundant because the earthquake had happened. And so everybody's attention was diverted to dealing with the consequences of, of, of the reality of this earthquake rather than just some sort of rather dry report about, about preparedness. Um, and yet the findings we had on that report were very pertinent to the issue of what was actually happening during the earthquake. Uh, and. Uh, so it was it was a strange situation where we we we'd done an evaluation that became instantly redundant. Another example of adaptive programming um, comes from our our work in Syria recently. John and I have been evaluating the Tamkeen program, and when we wrote the proposal um, for the, the um, Department of International Development about a year ago, um, the border between Turkey and Syria was still open. And we wrote a proposal assuming that we would be able to bring our researchers, our Syrian researchers, across the border to train them, to meet with them, to discuss the purpose of the evaluation, to make sure that everyone was on the same page. But when we actually started working, the border had closed and we were never able to meet with them. Um, so we had to conduct all of our work remotely and change quite a lot of our initial assumptions. This has other consequences as well, and that is that we, we're dealing with a team who we never meet, but we're also dealing with a situation that we never see. So this is remote management um, with where there's a sort of cascading, if you like, of responsibilities. We start here, we get as far as the, the Syrian border, and we can't go any further. So then we rely on a, an indigenous organization who then relies on their own people on the ground who are actually living in those towns to send information. And so you're going down about three or four layers here. Uh, and it has its own inbuilt consequences, one of which obviously is, is how accurate is the information you're getting. You don't really know. 
uh, you're you're dealing with you're, you're trying to train people remotely as well. By the way, you're not you're not even talking to them face to face. You're training them into going out to get information for you, sending information, and you're hoping that the information they sent is accurate. But there's no way that you can verify that. Um, the only thing you can do is to double check with them later on by having some kind of debriefing uh, session. Uh, and you hope that by doing that, plus making sure that the questionnaires and everything that they're using are robust, you hope that uh, that you're getting information that you need. But it's it's you know it's a fairly um, risk um, risky program. With this theory evaluation, the way that we tried to quality assure our data, um, well, firstly was by having high level trainings, but at the end of the data collection. Once we'd done a first analysis of the transcripts that were coming in from the field, we held um, Skype conversations with an interpreter as well. Um, so we were in Gaziantep in Turkey. We were calling our researchers in Syria um, and asking them what their opinion of the program was, because they'd obviously been carrying out interviews and discussions, um, but also clarifying any issues that we had found in the transcripts. Um, so things that might seem obvious to them didn't um, quite make it once they'd been translated and come to us. Um, so clarifying any remaining issues and um, asking them what the challenges had been when they were collecting the data. And that might not have come through in the questionnaires as well. One of the things that sort of come up in, the, that I've been thinking about in the context of this conversation has been, you know, Helen, you were just talking about Skype calls across the border. I mean, if we sort of go back in time to a time when doing or doing any kind of work, um, international development work in a fragile and conflict-affected environment, um, you know, going back before Skype or going back before the internet. Um, John, what was that? What was that like? Well, we talked earlier about duty of care, and we're now very conscious about this duty of care to aid workers. There's been more people killed in aid work in the last ten years than there were in the previous twenty years. Uh, because now aid workers are very much targets as well as being, um, you know, obviously subject to, to, to kind of um, security issues uh, on their day-to-day -day -day work. But I have to say also that back in, in, in the 1980s in particular, um, the amount of risks we took were absolutely disproportionate to what you would do today. I mean, we, we were... We were going into... I mean, when I worked for Oxfam, we thought nothing of going into war zones, you know, just you know, with a, with a Land Rover and just driving straight into uh, cross lines in, in war and, and going, driving straight into situations that were, uh, you know, extremely hazardous. We didn't have that sense of danger, if you like, that perhaps is now very acute. And one of the reasons for that is because we were not targets. You know, we knew then that, that um, as aid organizations, it would be extremely unfortunate if you were caught uh, in the crossfire. Uh, but certainly you, you wouldn't be the target. Um, so, so we took risks then that, that wouldn't be acceptable today. Um, and, um, and I think there, is, there has been that acute um, increase in, in, in concern over people's safety. It's an insurance thing as well to some extent. Uh, but the downside of it is that means that people are far less um, able to... Uh, to actually go down to the ground to see stuff now that, that, than they used to be able to. Uh, 
and, and it does mean that we have a situation where quite often somebody would, for example, if I take Afghanistan, for example, there are people who'd say to me, oh, I've just been two years in Afghanistan. And they haven't. They've been two years, sat in an office behind a huge bunker uh, in Kabul, and they never got out of it. They, they just flew into the city, stayed in that office, and flew out two years later. They didn't see anything of the country. Something that you talked about uh, with us earlier during the lunchtime talk was this concept of bunkerization. Can you just just talk us through that? By bunkerization, I, 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 I was referring to quite literally bunkers in some cases, in many cases actually, uh, where people are hidden behind this security veil which they've created themselves where they are unable to move into the field or if they are even if they go into the field they have to be very heavily securitized by by you know having a private company working along by side by side with you and only only being able to go in certain areas has to be double checked before you go all that kind of stuff you know um, there's a lot of um, cushioning, if you like, of, of um, international aid workers from the, the subject of their, of their uh, assistance. Um, the consequence of this is that there has been, unfortunately, a, a way in which consensus of opinion resides just in the aid world. So we have a situation where the aid world itself talks to itself a lot. Um, you know, if, if I work for the UN, I'm talking to the next UN agency, who's talking to the next NGO, who's talking to the next journalist, who's talking to the next UN agency. And before you know where you are, you've got a kind of circular uh, system of opinion going round from one mouth to the next, and everybody's sat, sat around in one room almost, you know. They're not necessarily deriving this knowledge from, from the field, they're getting it from themselves. There is a danger that, first of all, that means that everybody talks the same language and they have the same opinion. The second thing is that uh, the, um, the, 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 the problem is that they, they sort of pass on, if you like, wisdom as their own, but they're not really, it's somebody else's wisdom, so they're not deriving from any primary data at all. Um, and the third danger, which I think is a realistic danger, is that this consensus kind of becomes the... the um, you know, the, the, the paradigm that everybody is, is working under. And, uh, and it becomes the acceptable paradigm. So we, we're writing our reports with the same phrases in it. And the, the upshot of that is that something could be happening that we're just simply not seeing out there. Uh, and then when it does happen, we're reacting to it rather than anticipating it. The reason we can't anticipate it is because we don't have the information. Um, so there is this, it's, it's a problem of a sort of Chinese whispers type of idea, you know, where you, where you don't really, there's an ever-decreasing pool of information. I think this issue of remote management or bunkerization of aid is certainly true in Syria, where we saw the donors, the implementing partners, the, the program implementers, and the evaluation teams, so ourselves, um, were all relying on Syrian nationals to actually carry out um, program activities. And we were all sitting in Turkey or London waiting to get information back. The only, or one of the positive sides though, is that um, this particular program had strong local Syrian ownership. Um, and a lot of the people we spoke to during the course of our evaluation said that it was viewed as a Syrian program. Um, I'm sure that there was some understanding that it was 
um, donor funded, but they didn't even necessarily know who that donor might be. And it certainly wasn't one of the most important aspects of it. Which, which would bring me to an important point to make, and that is that we do need to invest far more money into building the capacity of local organizations to do their own evaluations. Uh, and we haven't invested that money in, in uh, developing countries. And yet, m most developing countries actually do have their own evaluation organizations. Uh, but they need to have this, the transfer of skills, uh, and they need to have the transfer of money to enable them to do their jobs more effectively. And I think that's where we failed, really. We've, we've, we've invested in ourselves, you know, to do evaluations. And we're, we are still, you know, the dominant uh, evaluators, if you like, but, and we're coming from outside rather than uh, establishing some kind of indigenous skill set. I think that we all work with local partners. We rely on them heavily for all of our evaluations, but we could do a lot more in terms of building their capacity. Um, for the Syria project, we worked with a, an incredible local firm, um, a researcher is based in Gaziantep, but with a wide network throughout Syria. And I think that they were much more capable than we first um, realized. When we were planning our evaluation, we thought that they would really just collect data for us, but we would be analyzing it and drawing conclusions. And in reality, they were more than capable of um, doing at least the first level of analysis of the, the information that, we were, that was coming in from Syria. Um, we, we helped them design the tools, we helped them refine the, the questions we were going to ask people on, in the field, but they were, they were a very capable organization. Um, and they may not be able to win contracts on their own, they might have to still go through international firms like ourselves, but I think that we can do a lot more in helping them develop their skills and you know, one day soon have firms such as themselves um, carry out entire evaluations independently. So if, this is a question for both of you, if, uh, if you had to write a quick how to uh, conduct evaluations in, in fragile and conflict-affected environments, what would be some of the key points? How to do it. Um, first, explain to the client, the person who's asked for the evaluation, that there is a high degree of speculation involved. It's not going to, the, the information you're going to create out of this, and the, even the judgments you're going to create, are not pure in the sense that you're not using quantitative, you're using a lot of qualitative data. Um, and explain that therefore, you know, there is a, a, quite a degree of, of, of flexibility that has to be allowed in these type of, of situations. Um, secondly, that that um, all despite that, it is possible still to get uh, some uh, degree of um, independent view expressed, provided you ensure that uh, the people you talk to are um, are genuinely not connected with the programs, or or if they are connected, they're sort of beneficiaries, and you're you're right, you're sort of accessing the right people, if you like, but certainly not the people who are perpetrating this, as I was talking earlier on about this kind of, you know, ever-decreasing loop of information. Um, so you have to somehow get, get around that and try to bring some kind of unique perspective. Um, but, uh, but other than that, it's, um, it is 
going to be difficult, and you have to accept the the, the security implications for this kind of thing. Um, I was I was doing an evaluation in Yemen not very long ago, and, and for, for two organisations. Firstly, the British government, which didn't didn't allow me to do anything except sit in a armour-plated car and, 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 and go to an embassy. Uh, and then six months later, I went and did one for one of the um, Geneva-based organizations, an agricultural organization there. And they just said, well, you get on, on with it yourself. And I, I hired a local driver and I went all over the country. Now, the contrast between those two, they were both evaluations, they were both in the same country, both in the same context. And yet, both organizations had a very, very different approach to, uh, to personal security. Uh, and you could say, well, I took far too many risks the second time around, you know, by going all over the country. Or conversely, you could say, ah, yes, but I actually learned far more uh, by doing so. And it's true, I did. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so when you're doing these, when you're working in these fragile situations, uh, the level of risk that you take has to partly be a personal one, a personal decision. It partly has to be the responsibility of the organization to obviously you know, have its own edicts in that respect. Uh, and thirdly, you have to have that compromise between personal security and the information that you're likely to get. I think you also need to expect delays throughout the process. Um, everything that can go wrong will at some point. Um, and like we said before, you have to be flexible and change your approach. Um, to some extent. Um, in, in Syria, we had quite a few delays in data collection due to the conflict. Um, we would have to wait for a few days if the city was getting bombed. Um, we didn't want to put our researchers into any risk. Um, and, you know, the client understood this, um, but it's something that's inevitable, I think, when you're working in these kind of contexts. So, so John and Helen, again, this is for the both of you. We've, we've talked a lot about evaluations in, in different countries. We've given some, we've talked through some um, some wonderful examples here. How do you actually make sure that, you know, all the research that's done in order to arrive at uh, a set of evaluation findings, how do you make sure that those are put into practice or that they're converted into policy? I think that more and more we're seeing learning being integrated into uh, monitoring and evaluation. Um, so it's something that here at IMC we've taken very seriously and have tried to invest quite a lot of resources into. Um, I think that you have to design sort of a research uptake element into your evaluations. You have to think about it right at the start before you, you, you know, start your work. Um, because you have to be thinking about these things as you're doing the evaluation. How, how do we make these findings useful? How do we ensure that the right audience is picking them up? Um, and actually using them to possibly inform policy um, or project design or redesign if it's a, an ongoing project that might have a second phase. Um, so it's not something that you can think about at the end and just say, oh, how are we going to use these findings now? Um, I think that it's, you have to really design it from the, the beginning and make sure that the learning is being used. Some years ago, I did an evaluation of the Overseas Development Institute in London and asked, I was asked to look into how do people learn things. As a, They do a whole lot of publications, by the way, on, on guidelines and, and, and you know, policy papers and whatever. And uh, probably not surprisingly, we found, having done this survey of, of different organizations and managers and whatever, uh, that very few of them actually sat down with these papers and read them. <laughs> 
Um, and when we ask, so where do you get your learning from? They say, well, from experience, from our own, you know, hands-on experience. Again, not surprisingly. Um, there is, however, now a push to using evaluation not just as a, a paper to sit on a shelf somewhere, but actually um, taking it one step further, which is to say, right, we've done the evaluation, here are the recommendations. Now, you as an organization have to follow up on those recommendations, and we are going to monitor it. We're going to say, what did you do with those recommendations? We're going to ask you in six months' time, and we're going to ask you in 12 months' time, what did you do with those recommendations? And I think that's a good thing. It means that evaluation has been mainstreamed in an organization. It means that the organization is you know, uh, cognizant of the importance of integrating evaluation into their in, into their sort of day-to-day -day lives, if you like. Uh, so, it's um, it, it is a good it, it's a good move. Um, unfortunately, there are still still a very large number of organisations in which those reports do just sit on the shelf, um, and per perhaps are not really thoroughly read by more than two or three individuals. Uh, but uh, at least. Uh, we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere to the point where, you know, the evaluation culture of organisations is improving. And I think um, evaluation, as I said earlier on, the evaluation industry, if you like, is becoming larger, more complex, more sophisticated as a result of this. And here at IMC, when we both implement projects and evaluate them, we've tried to start developing an internal system um, where we can learn from our evaluation findings, for example, uh, to inform project design. Um, we haven't completely um, finished this yet, but it's underway. And um, I think that that's also very important to use, to use these findings, um, not just for the donors or other stakeholders, but also for the firms who, um, who are carrying out these evaluations. Um, they could be using them as well. Um, one example on the, the Syria evaluation. Um, so the donor asked us to give a certain number of presentations on our findings. So we had some presentations that were at a fairly low local level um, looking at the communities we evaluated. Um, so those findings were interesting mainly to, to other people who were working in Syria, maybe in the same communities or on similar types of projects. <clears throat> we presented higher level findings um, to the British government, to a number of different departments. Um, for people who are working in Syria but might also be working in different countries and different programs. Um, and these findings were fairly informal. They were just, you know, we presented for an hour or so um, and tried to get a discussion going. And I think something even that might not seem particularly useful um, can get people thinking about lessons that they might be able to learn and how they can then follow that up. Um, they might not read a 50-page report, but if they sit in a you know, in front of a PowerPoint for half an hour and have a chance to ask a question, that might even be more useful. That's a very important point, actually, that evaluation serves another function. It's not just about reporting and, and, and presenting recommendations. It's also about creating the space for organizations to reflect on what they do. And it's surprising that in the day-to-day -day rush of what you're doing, you very rarely have that opportunity. And so when the evaluators come in, they allow you to sit back and just reflect a little bit on the overall consequences of what you're doing. And many people appreciate that. Um, I remember um, not very long ago, a very senior person in DFID uh, said to me, you know, it doesn't matter as an evaluator, it doesn't matter if you're right, 
What matters is that you raise the issue for us to discuss. That was John Bennett and Helen Stevenson discussing evaluations in fragile and conflict-affected states. Thank you for joining us, and if you'd like to listen to more IMC podcasts, do check out our website, which is on imcworldwide.com, or you can find us on SoundCloud. Thanks again.